following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Uh, this passage breaks down into basically two large sections. The first section looks at circumcision. And as I mentioned before, the backdrop of all this is that Paul is really dialoguing with an imaginary Jewish person, uh, debating the merits of salvation through Christ apart from Judaism. And that was one of the problems or dilemmas of, of the new movement that God raised up through Christ through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the birth of the church. The big question was, um, you know, we're saved by faith in Christ, but what does that have to do with the old system of Judaism? And, of course, there were many people in, in Paul's day, Jews, who said, you can come to Christ, sure, you can be saved by faith in Christ, sure, what Jesus did is effective, his death on the cross, but to get to the cross, you have to go through the door of Judaism, uh, which meant primarily two things. It meant adhering strictly to all the Old Testament laws and regulations, and it meant, for guys, circumcision. Well, Paul is arguing in in the first part of the book of Romans why what Jesus did has done away with and has fulfilled and completed uh, the Old Testament system so that we no longer have to do that. We We no longer come to Christ. We need to find the path to the cross through the road of Judaism. So the first issue that he, he uh, presents is the issue of circumcision. And circumcision was, was really the sign of what it meant to be a Jew. And uh, in fact, the Old Testament was quite clear on this. And this is what makes it a bit complicated, is that the language of the Old Testament is quite firm and clear. Uh, it says in the Old Testament that if you are not circumcised, you are kicked out, you are excommunicated from the people of Israel. In fact, if you remember this, this um, scene when Moses is, is, has been called by God to go back to bring the people out of Egypt. Remember that? And he had his wife Zipporah with him. And one night in the middle of the night, an angel comes to God, uh, an angel from God comes to Zipporah and says, I'm about to kill Moses. Right? And she's going, huh, why? Because he's not circumcised and neither are your boys and I'm going to kill them. Right? That's pretty serious. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of a big deal. Right? So for the Jews, this was a big deal. And now all of a sudden, uh, Paul's coming along and he's saying, uh, that's not necessary. That's not really what it's about. Um, and so, of course, it fueled huge debate. And so Paul answers the question this way. He says this, is this blessing, this blessing that he just talked about, a forgiveness of redemption, is this blessing only then for the circumcised? Is it something that we appropriate only through the, the door of Judaism? Uh, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Okay, so that was out of Genesis. Okay, that, that phrase, it was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness by his faith. His faith was reckoned as righteousness. It comes right out of Genesis. Okay, So he's using Old Testament scripture to make his point. Uh, and he says, how then was it counted? In other words, when did Abraham gain right relationship with God? Was it before he was circumcised or after? Uh, sorry. Well, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal 
of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Paul calls circumcision a seal, a sign or a seal. Actually, in the in, in Genesis account, it calls it the sign of circumcision. Uh, Paul adds to that imagery the image of a seal. What is a seal? Well, uh, when I because I'm old, we're getting older. I remember a day when a lot of commercials, a lot of advertisements on TV that were in black and white, would say things like this. I would advertise the product, and at the end, it would say, "Look for the good housekeeping seal of approval." You may remember that. Okay, you just dated yourself. Because okay? I don't think they say that anymore. Right, look for the good housekeeping seal of approval. Now, I don't, I don't remember as a kid ever, you know, my mom going through the store going, I can only buy this if it's got the good housekeeping seal of approval. Um, but the idea was that somebody, Good Housekeeping Magazine, had viewed a product and had decided that it was authentic, real, genuine, and it had a certain level of quality, right? And so they would put their seal on it and, uh, you know, companies would work hard to get that seal because it upgraded, it validated their product, right? That's what a seal does. Now in modern days, a more modern picture of this is uh, a licensed version of Windows, right? And uh, computers, if they have a licensed version of Windows on the bottom, have this nifty little piece of paper. It's a seal, right? But it's not just any piece of paper. It's a paper that, um, that looks like money. You know, it's got all those intricate things in it that make it very... It's not just a photocopy, right? It's got the little silver tape and holograms and fibers and 3D, you know, things. Um, because it's, it's, it's a seal that verifies your computer's got the real deal, supposedly. I still don't believe the seal, actually, here. But it's supposed to, right? It's a seal. A seal authenticates something that's already in existence, it validates and ver- verifies something that already is. Right? Well, well, Paul says, look, what circumcision is for the Jews is this. It is a validation, a seal, a, an, an accreditation, a confirmation of what was already true in Abraham's life. Right? It is validating he had already stepped out and was walking by faith and had been made right with God on the basis of his faith. Uh, probably the closest... Uh, New Testament version of this would be baptism. We, we see baptism as what? As a sign, as a seal of what has already happened inwardly. An, an outward sign or seal of what's already happened inwardly. So we, we don't, at least in this church, uh, some churches baptize infants. Uh, we don't. We would say uh, baptism is held or reserved for those who have already made a profession of faith and there's evidence of that inwardly. And so we seal that uh, not that it seals the deal, but it's, it's an affirmation. It's an authentication of what's true inside. Right? Now, the, for the Jews, it wasn't optional that they get that authentication or not. Right? But what was important was not the seal, it's what it represented. It was the faith that it marked. Right? And, and Paul says the, the proof of that is which came first, you know, the chicken or the egg, which came first, faith or the seal. Well, of course... The real thing has to be in existence before you can verify it. And that's what he's saying here. But the Jews had got that, you know, they got the cart before the horse, so to speak. They had reversed that. And they saw that the thing was the seal itself, was the sign. Right? That that was what counted. Uh, But Paul says, no, that can't be because Abraham's faith predated it. And there's two ways to look at it. Uh, most, Most Christian scholars would date Abraham's journey of faith beginning at least 14 years before circumcision. Interestingly, 
the, the rabbinic Jews in Paul's day would have marked that at 30 years. Now, I don't know how they do their math, but uh, either way, it was a significant period of time before circumcision that Abraham had started his journey toward God in faith. And so uh, Paul's saying, look, you guys got it backwards. Okay, you got it backwards. And it's interesting that throughout uh, Scripture, Paul never tells the Jews that they no longer have to follow their Jewish customs and rituals, okay? But he, what, what he is arguing is that there's now two ways to come to the cross. One, through Judaism as a Jewish person, but there's another path that bypasses all of that. And he says the real, the, the, the first thing, the thing that's most important, the thing that precedes it all, is simply faith. Simply faith that appropriates God making us right with himself. And, uh, and so that's... That's what he argues here. And I would say, just by way of applying this principle, uh, in, in, as we share Christ, as we, as we think about the gospel, as we think about um, proclaiming Jesus to the world, does faith really come first for us? Okay, is the thing that is the entry point to, to salvation, the thing is the entry point to Christianity, is it truly the, the step of faith that a person takes to receive God's gracious gift. Uh, of course, we would all say yes, and because it's doctrinally correct. Um, at the same time, though, it's interesting how often the church or the Christian world, maybe the Christian press, whoever, whoever they are, you know, they say, um, that you know, if you want to become a Christian, you've got to clean up your act first, right? In fact, I've, I've shared the gospel with people who, who will say that. You know, I would really like to become a Christian... But I gotta, I gotta get my life together first. And when I get my life together, then I can trust Jesus, right? Uh, well, this would say no, right? In fact, if you wait to get your life straightened up and cleaned up before you trust God, you're in trouble because it's never going to happen. Right? It's never going to happen because the power you need to ch- make change in your life can only come through faith and through what God uh, does as He comes into our life and empowers us. So, faith must come first. Um, and we could talk a lot about uh, a lot of Christian culture in our day that tries to um, impose Christian morality and values on culture. Um, and, and we ought to have influence. Certainly, we ought to be trying to shape the world towards God's standards. Uh, but there's a fine line between legislating Christian morality, right, and proclaiming faith that transforms somebody's life, right? Uh, the whole thing in, in the United States now is the whole thing about gay marriage and churches are all in an uproar about, do you approve gay marriages? Do you fight? Do you, do you, you know, murder judges who approve this? You know, there's all this crazy talk going on. Uh, I would say, uh, I, don't, I don't have the answers to all that. I don't want to get into the debate. But I would say this. The key point is proclaiming faith in Christ, Right? What people who live in any kind of immoral lifestyle need is not to become moral. They need faith in the living God of the universe to transform and change their life. Uh, so really, if the church were wise, we would stay out of that discussion. We would, we would proclaim a Jesus who anybody can come to by faith and who will transform your life. Uh, we can put a disclaimer, be warned. That transformation may change you in many ways, right? It may change your sexual preference. 
if you're confused on that one, right? But the point is not moralizing people, right? The gospel is about putting faith in this God who accepts us as we are. So that's what Paul's arguing here. So first thing, um, we've got to get the right order of things. And it's clear that the key point is, is uh, that, that Abraham is the father of all who believe. Right? Not all who are morally upright and good citizens. He's the father of all who believe. He says in verse 11 and 12, the purpose of all this, in other words, the purpose that God delayed the sign of circumcision for 14 to 30 years, the reason God instituted this order was to make Abraham the father of all who believe. All who believe, without being circumcised. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Right? So Paul's arguing that, that Abraham is a prototype of faith for you and I. To come to Christ, to come to faith, to come to right relationship with God, not through Judaism, not through keeping the law, but simply through a faith relationship with God. And to make him the father of the circumcised as well, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith. So even for the Jew, their circumcision is meaningless if they're not walking down the footsteps, the track of faith, following in Abraham's footsteps, trusting God to make them right. Through the simple uh, work, the simple practice of faith on our part. Um, then Paul introduces, in, in the next verse, of verse 13, Paul switches gears a little bit. He, he introduces a new concept into this whole scheme. The first three and a half chapters, he's been really focusing on two key ideas. One, that we need to be justified, that we need to be made right with God. We've sinned, we are not right with God, and our relationship was broken. It needs to be made right, and the avenue by which it's made right is God's gift of Christ who atones for us, and that we receive that gift through faith. But here he, he introduces a new concept, uh, and he says in verse 13, uh, actually, let me read it out of this translation, uh, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the whole world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And he has this concept of promise, the promise of God, the promise to Abraham. Uh, he goes on, he says, um, the, for, the, uh, <clears throat> for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So he has this new elephant, uh, elephant this new elephant, this new element <laughs> uh, called faith, right? Now, uh, I mean, called promise and faith in the promise. And you know, we talk a lot about faith, and he's talked a lot about faith. But the question is, what, are, what do we really have faith in? What is the object of faith? And of course, it's assumed, well, God, right? Sunday school answer, Jesus, the Bible, right? Um, and that's true. Our faith is in God. The object of our faith is in God or in Christ and his work. But uh, the, the more detailed question is, what is, that, what is that really that we're trusting in about God? What is it that, uh, besides just God in general, what is the real focus, the pinpoint focus of our faith? And he says really that the, the object of our faith is not just God generally, not just Jesus generally, not just this broad sweeping thing about God, but it really is the promises of God. 
God has made promises to us. He made promises to Abraham. And in Abraham's life, as the, uh, as the one whose footsteps we are following in, he claimed and believed in the clear and simple promises of God. Uh, and we need to talk just a little bit about what it means for God to make a promise. Uh, and the reason we have to talk about it is that because when God makes a promise, He does not make promises the same way you and I make promises. Or at least, I'll speak for myself, the way I make promises. Okay, When I make a promise, uh, what I'm talking about is what I would like to do. Right? What I, it may be a goal, it may be a hope. Um, and I may or may not have a huge commitment to it. Right? <laughs> right? For example, my wife says to me, Honey, we need to clean out the storage closet. Okay, and I always know what we means. We is girl talk for you. (laughs) We need to clean out the storage closet. And of course, I know the right answer is to say, sure, dear, we do. (laughs) Right? I'll work on it. Right? And I make a promise, I'll work on it. Uh, Now, I I may at some level believe I will work on it. I I may in my my imagination have this grand concept that I will work on it. But oftentimes, my commitment to that promise is a little weak, right? Uh, Maybe the intention's there, but that's about as far as it ever gets. Um, uh, Another part of the problem with our promise is sometimes we are deeply committed to it. Sometimes we are very intentional about it, very serious about it. But sometimes we just don't have the resources or capacity to pull off our promises, right? How many of you got caught in that one? You made a promise you were very serious about. But when it came down to it, you could not deliver because it was beyond your ability. Uh, I remember I made the mistake uh, way, way back in our marriage of promising Denise that for our 10th anniversary we would go on a cruise, right? Well, when our 10th anniversary rolled around, we couldn't afford to go out to dinner, right? Much less go on a cruise, so I just kept delaying the promise. And as most of you know, last year for our 30th, I finally had to cough up on the deal, right? Because <laughs> after 20 years, you know, you got to come through. And uh, even after 20 years, you know, the hope was that someday I would actually be, have the capacity to deliver. Well, even at 30 years, the only thing I had more capacity for was I had greater capacity for debt because I had more, you know, credit limit on my credit card. Um, not because I had the resources to do it. Uh, but when God makes promises, uh, He's not like that, right? When God says that He promises something, His promise is based on His absolute commitment to fulfill His will. Right? God never randomly says anything unless it's absolutely what He is convinced He will do. Right? And He not only is committed to it because it's what He wants to do, because He's committed to doing it, but he also has all the resources and capacity to carry it out. So when God makes a promise, it's not like when we make a promise. When God made promises to Abraham or he makes promises to us, uh, it's, it's not just what God hopes he will do, what he would like to do, what someday he might do. It is a declaration of what God will do, what God will unfold, what God will make available to us. Uh, and, and the and, and so we have to look at what the basis of his promises are. Um, and, and as we look at promises, promises sometimes come with conditions. In fact, oftentimes a promise is a two-way relationship, right? So the way it works is, is uh, there's the promise maker 
who is willing and able to, to do something, to keep a promise. And there's the promise receiver, and oftentimes there's a condition on the side of the receiver, right? The one getting the promise. So right now, you know, it's graduation season, and lots of people are graduated from high school. And when I was in high school, some of the parents had promised their kids this promise. They said, if you graduate with a 4.0 grade average, I'll buy you a car, right? My parents never made that promise, and it wouldn't have mattered anyway. Um, so in that, in that illustration, the, uh, the receiver has a condition. They have to measure up to a certain standard before the promise becomes effective. Uh, the promise giver, likewise, has to have some capacity and will to follow through. Uh, so let's take just a minute and look at uh, the sight of God. Well, actually, before we get to that, let's, let, let's look at uh, what Paul says about what it's not. Okay, um, Are there conditions on this promise? Notice what Paul says. He says, The promise to Abraham and his offspring would to be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if its adherence, for if it is the adherence, the followers of the law, who are to be heirs or recipients of the promise, faith is null and the promise is void. Okay? Are there? Were there for? for and, and of course, Paul's argument is based on Abraham's life. He says basically, did God put any conditions of law on the promise He made to Abraham? Paul could have used this argument. He could have said, look, Abraham lived 430 years before Moses came along and wrote the law. Right? Um, so if, if, circ- if circumcision came later, the law came much later. He doesn't use that line of argument. He, he uses a slightly different argument. And he says, he says, he says simply, even, even if the law had come the next day, okay, even if Mo- uh, Abraham had somehow known the law of God. Uh, somehow, you know, the Holy Spirit had just put it in his head. He says, even then, the law could not be connected with the promise. Right? Um, and, he, and he says it in these terms. He says, if, if the promise depends on keeping the law, faith is made useless and the promise is terminated. Right? And the, use, the, word, the verbs he uses there are quite strong. He said, the promise is made null and void. It is canceled. It is of absolutely no good. And then he follows it up with this phrase. He says, for, um, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. He says basically this. There's no way, if, if it was conditioned on law, there's no way Abraham could have carried it out successfully. And that's what he's been arguing in the first three chapters of Romans. He says, if it depends on law... To receive God's promises, we're all in big trouble because what the law ultimately brings is wrath. If we're we're going to try to do this by being good enough, as we talked about before, uh, all we can get out of it is God's wrath. We cannot successfully be good enough. In other words, if God says, I'll give you a car if you get a four-point grade average, we all fail. Because not only do we not get a 4.0, we don't get a 3.0 or a 2.0. We fail. Right? We fail. So therefore, he says that if it was up to Abraham's ability to keep the law, the law would have been canceled out as null and void. And faith would have been pointless. So let's look at, so that's what it's not. He says, and he's argued that, we've talked about that already. Move on. So what is the basis? Well, he, 
he says the basis on God's side, what God as the promise giver on his side, what he gives us, uh, what the basis of the promises is basically two things. First of all, in verse 16, he says, that's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. I love those words. That the promise may rest on grace. What is the basis of God giving us anything? Praise God, it is simply His grace. God decided He wanted you and I to have His blessing, His kindness, His forgiveness, and His grace. And He said, it is going to be a free gift. There is not anything that you need to do to purchase it, and there is nothing you can do to deserve or merit it. Uh, God's grace is His favor or kindness towards us regardless of what we do. God decided to grant Abraham these promises simply out of His grace. Um, So that's the basis of God's promise. His own heart or character as a gracious, loving, generous God who wants to give gifts to people who just absolutely don't deserve it. Who don't deserve it. Secondly, so first is grace. Secondly, uh, it's based on God's incredible ability to carry it out. Uh, Paul puts it this way. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. And then he has kind of a parenthesis in verses, uh, in, in, into verse 16, beginning of verse 17. But he skips to this line. He says, uh, guaranteed to his offspring, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, this God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that don't exist. A great picture of God's power. And uh, he, says, he says God is this God who brings dead stuff to life. But it's a word that's, very, that's not used typically of, say, resurrection. Okay? Uh, the word resurrection in Greek is the idea of lifting something up. But the word he uses here is a fun word, Greek lesson for the morning. You already got your pens and papers for Greek lesson today. Greek word of the day is uh, zoapeo. Zoapeo. And the, it's two words. The first word, zoa, is, is the noun form of the word zoe. What does zoe mean? Somebody? What? Life. Right. So that's the first part, life. second word is poeo, which means to make. Right? It means to make living, make alive, make life. Right? It's, it's a word that would be used for taking a, a, a dead seed and putting it in the ground, and out of this dead seed, something living comes out, right? And what, what Paul clearly has in mind here is Abraham's faith that God would take his dead body, uh, later he talks about Sarah's dead womb, and bring life out of it, right? That God would generate life out of these two old dead people. Not that they were literally dead, but you know they had kind of one foot in the grave picture. And God would bring life out of that. Right? Uh, not only that, but he says that it's this God who can call into existence the things that don't exist. Okay? In other words, God was going to make Abraham a, a great nation, and he was going to do it from nothing, from absolutely nothing. Right? And uh, it's, it's two great pictures of God's power and ability to create and to do whatever he wants. If I want to build something, right, I got to go to the store. I got to buy because I'm a carpenter, right? I can do this. I got to get l- lumber. I got to get 
tools. I've got to get nails and screws. And then I can build something. God doesn't need stuff. He can create from nothing just by speaking it into existence, right? So on God's side, He has grace. He has the will. He has promised. And He has the capacity and ability to do stuff for us, to keep His Word. But what about on our side? What, is, there, is there then no condition on our side? Well, actually, there is a condition on our side. There is something we must do. It's not keeping a law. It's not being good. But the condition on our side is what? Faith, right? We have to have faith. We have to have some kind of belief or confidence that God has made the promise, that He is gracious in giving it in spite of what we deserve, and that He's able to do what He said. That's our side of it. And, and, and by faith, we appropriate what God has promised. Um, let's kind of wrap this up by, by looking at uh, what faith looked like for Abraham. Okay, we are to follow in his footsteps. Right? So what's the path he's walking down? What did faith look like for Abraham? Three quick things. First one... Uh, Abraham, had, Abraham had a hope when things looked hopeless. Verse 18, In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Uh, there was no reason for Abraham to believe this could happen. Right? Humanly speaking, the guy was 100 years old, right? His wife was 90 years old. They had tried to have babies. Okay, they had tried to make babies more than once. It just didn't work, right? Uh, humanly speaking, they were far past the age when anybody could have a child, right? Humanly speaking, it was hopeless. It made no sense. It was silly, right? Abraham had hope when everything was hopeless. Uh, faith is confidence... In what is, uh, in what is, faith, I'm sorry, faith is not confidence in what is visible and obvious. Okay, we need to mark this down because oftentimes what faith comes for us is believing what's believable, right? Believing what can be done. Faith that, that Abraham exercised, the faith that God talks about in the Bible, is believing God for the impossible, what does not make sense. Um, what the world says is just ridiculous. And when you think about the truth of the gospel, it is kind of ridiculous. You know, the world says only what you can see could be real, right? Only what we can prove and demonstrate scientifically could be real. Christians say what is most real is the invisible spiritual realm that we can't test. <laughs> okay? Uh, no, it, it's a hard sell. The world says, live for today, enjoy all the pleasure you can now, because who knows about the afterlife? We say, uh, live for eternity, a place no one has ever seen and no one has ever been and come back, and that there's no solid proof that it exists. But live for that, right? Uh, the world says, you are trusting in a dead guy to give you eternal life. Right? We say, uh, we... Uh, that a God we cannot see is going to come and judge the world, but He sent His Son who died, who came back to life, even though nobody's seen Him for 2,000 years, we have confidence that He's coming again, soon. Right? 
Okay, it's, it's a little hard to sell this one to the world because it doesn't make sense. Faith is confidence in what we cannot see. Right? A second thing it says about his faith, he had unwavering faith in the face of, of huge failure. It says in verse 19, He did not weaken in the faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the deadness of Sarah's womb. Uh, it says that he did not weaken or waver in his faith. Now I want you to picture what this meant for Abraham. Uh, scripture says in Genesis that he uh, waited, that God promised him he would have a son when he was 75 years old. Okay, In itself, that would be a remarkable feat. Right? But he had to wait for an additional 25 years. Okay, And it, it was 25 years of continual failure to produce a child. Right? And I could probably say some funny things about uh, how this must have worked for Abraham. You know, hey, honey, I'm feeling really a lot of faith tonight. I think we need to try. Uh, I don't know how it worked for him. But he kept trying, right, for 25 years. And for 25 years, it did not work. It failed, right? When we trust God for things, when you pray for things, when you take steps because you believe God has called you to something, how far do you go in that before failure causes you to quit and say, this doesn't work? Right? He persisted for 25 impossible years. Right? Keep trying, keep believing, keep trusting. Right? Convinced that God was going to keep His promise. Right? He did not grow weak. Uh, in spite of everything He saw, in spite of all the evidence in spite of everything that shouted at him, this is the stupidest thing in the world. What are you doing? He believed God. Third thing, verse 20, it says, uh, he, he, he was strengthened by the pursuit of faith. Notice what it says. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. Okay? Note that phrase. His, he, his faith grew strong, or he grew strong in his faith. He grew strong. Right? Uh, it's kind of hard to know how to translate that. If he grew strong in faith or his faith grew strong in him, the point is, during that time period, his faith did not weaken or diminish, but actually grew. Okay, it got stronger. Right? And God, uh, you know, we can ask how it grew, how it got stronger. Certainly God was behind it. Okay? God was developing his faith. Well, how was God developing Abraham's faith? Uh, this is how I think God should develop faith. I think God should have had Abraham pray and instantly given him what he asked for. I think that would develop faith. Right? I like that idea. Because right? I, I get some confidence that it works. You may like that idea? I want to pray, God, I need a new car. Poof, I go out and it's there. And I go, wow, this works, right? I get it now. I, I'm going to pray for more stuff, right? God, I want a bigger car. I want a new house. Uh, you know, an airplane. Um, poof, it's there. Ooh, man, I believe. I believe in God, right? Well, let's think about how that would work. Okay, back up to the previous point. 
Faith is what? Faith is being convinced in the face of what you do not see. Faith is being absolutely convinced when there is no hope, there's no evidence, there's no proof. See, the version of faith I just described that I would like isn't really faith at all. It's belief in what I can see. It's wanting quick answers because it's proof and evidence that now becomes the basis of my faith in what I can see, what I can put my hands on, what's plainly visible. The problem is that's not faith. Not the kind of faith that Paul's talking about here in the book of Romans. Not the kind of faith that can save you. Not the kind of faith that can produce Christian character. Because the reality is, the real world we live in is not physical, it is spiritual. The reality that we are most part of eternally is an invisible realm. Right? God Himself is invisible. Right? No one has seen Him at any time. When we get to heaven, we're not going to see, oh, wow, I can see God now. Even in heaven, God, the Father, is invisible. We will not see Him. Right? Our relationship, our faith, our meeting and connecting with God depends on us having faith in what we cannot see. So how did God develop this kind of faith in Abraham? Well, by giving him a promise that he did not answer for a long, long time. Right? By saying, I'm going to give you a son, and then torturing him for 25 years of keep reminding him. So you got a son yet? Where's that son? Oh, he's not here yet. You still believe? Right? Then he finally gets the son, and God says what? Now go kill him. Right? Constantly, God is developing his faith. Stretching him out, not in what he sees, but in what he does not see. Right? How, how, do, how is God developing faith in your life and my life? Well, he uses the same exact plan. If we're going to follow in the footsteps of Abraham, this is how it's going to work. God is going to make promises to you to take care of you, to meet your needs, to bring healing and health, to do all kinds of cool stuff in your life. And you know what? God is going to almost always be late. Right? Uh, I don't know about you, but the experience of my life is I pray for stuff and God is always late. He is always slow. Right? Why can't He do this on time? Right? Maybe He's Thai. I don't know. Um, or maybe He's, maybe he's like me. I'm the one who's always late, actually. Because um, He knows that to develop our faith is training an endurance runner. Right? If you're going to train for a marathon, you don't go out and run 100-meter sprints. Right? If you're going to train for a marathon, you need to go out and you need to go on very long runs to build up endurance. Faith is endurance. In fact, oftentimes in the New Testament, uh, faith could, endurance could really be substituted for that word faith. It's the long, enduring patience that steadfastly pursues God and follows Him. Right? Um, <clears throat> Psalm 103, and I kind of hesitate to do this, but let me read one last scripture. Psalm 103, very famous passage that talks about God's blessings. Uh, Starting in verse 2, it says this, Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things He does for me. Well, what good things does He do? Well, He forgives all my sins. How many of you believe God forgives your sins? Are you confident in that? Second line, He heals all my diseases. How many of you are confident in that? Okay. 
Some, good. Uh, for me, forgiving sins is easy. Believing he'll heal my diseases, I struggle with that one. Right? Okay, here's the thing. The faith that forgives sins is the same faith that heals our diseases. Throughout Scripture, often those two things are linked together. This has been my experience. And uh, part of the reason I bring this up is right now on our Friday morning prayer times, we're reading through a book by Andrew Murray called Divine Healing. We've been talking a lot about praying for healing, what that looks like, what that's like. And over and over again, this is what comes up. You know, I want to believe that. I want to believe God can heal. I want to believe that that promise is real. But I prayed and it didn't work. And here's, here's my new answer for that, okay? Anytime somebody says, I prayed it didn't work, I'm going to say, did you pray for 25 years? Right? Because that's what Abraham did, right? We think that faith is some kind of magic thing like Matilda. Have you ever seen the movie about this girl who's got magic, who finally learned that she could marshal enough power at one focus point in time to move stuff and do all kinds of magic, Right? We think faith is like that. If we can just muster enough faith all at one focus point of time, we can poof, make God do what we want. That's not faith. Faith is claiming God's promise. right? And it's a long pursuit of what God has said He would do. So this is how this ought to work in our life. If we're sick, we've got problems, we've got financial issues, we should pray until God fulfills His promise. If it takes us 30 years, 50 years, 100 years, you pray until God completes His promise. That's what faith is. The reason we are not growing in faith is that we bail out way too easily. That's for me. I mean, that's me. I bail out way too soon. Way too soon. I tried it. I prayed three whole times. I prayed for a whole week. And nothing happened. It doesn't work. I give up. Uh, no. Until you prayed for 25 years, you know, you haven't really endured trusting God to answer his prayer. I recently read a biography on D.L. Moody. And D.L. Moody had visited England, and while he was there uh, on a spiritual retreat, he had burned out. Uh, he was trying to do ministry in his own flesh. He went to England. While he was there, God really revealed to him a promise He says, you know, you don't have to do this in your own strength. My Holy Spirit will fill and empower you, enable you to do ministry. And it really changed his life. And and the rest of his ministry was really living out that promise of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, While he was in England, he was invited to come back by two different ministers who said, we want you to come back, we want you to preach the gospel uh, all over England. We'll pay for everything, we'll set up meetings, Uh, we'll take care of you. So Moody went back to the States uh, about a year later, got on a ship, traveled back to England. And of course, this is the day before Internet, email, Facebook. Got back to England uh, with no money because you know, these two guys had promised to pay for everything and take care of everything. Got there, and both guys had died. <laughs> right? Sad day. Oh, they're dead. Okay. So no money, no meetings, no place to stay, nothing. But Moody really felt that God had called him to England and had promised that he would do great ministry there. At that point, Moody said he could have said, I'm out of here, right? I'm going home. Obviously, this is not God's will because I don't see what I need to see to make it happen. 
I don't see proof that God's leading this way. But he didn't do that. He trusted in what he did not see. And he hung out in London and he started having some meetings. He kind of set up on his own. Uh, that began a two-year run in England where he ministered in, in, uh, in Great Britain, in Scottish, and Ireland, and saw well over a million people come to meetings where he proclaimed the gospel. Right? Over a million people. Because he persisted in faith in what God had promised. And out of that, hundreds of thousands came to Christ. A lot of new ministries sprung up. Cool stuff happened, right? Let's walk in the footsteps of Abraham. Let's persist in faith, right? Believe what is impossible because God has spoken his promise to us. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.